What's the most outrageous thing you have ever done? What's the most outrageous thing you've seen somebody else do? Just think about that for a minute, if you can come up with something. I'm not going to ask you. I might ask you later when we're having tea, but I'll not ask you just now. But outrageous is not a word that we usually associate with Jesus. We normally like to think of Jesus as being gentle, mild, loving, caring. But today's passage told us of a time when Jesus was outrageous, when he did something very outrageous, and when he said something very outrageous. Now, last week, we heard about the wedding when Jesus turned the water into the wine. Well, after that, Jesus and his mother, brothers and disciples, went to Capernaum for a few days, probably for a bit of a rest. You know what it's like after a wedding. You kind of need a bit of downtime. Well, then Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and that's when things started to get a bit outrageous. An outrageous act came first. It's Passover time, and Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem. Now, we know that the Passover is the annual festival which celebrates the story of Israel's departure from Egypt. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, Pharaoh didn't want them to be allowed to leave. And the Israelite families were spared when the angel of death passed over the homes because they had marked them by the sacrifice of a lamb. And this resulted in Pharaoh releasing the slaves who fled into the desert. But Passover is a time when families meet together, they have a meal together, and they retell that really important story in their history. And they offer sacrifices in the temple. Now, John's Gospel mentions three Passovers, and this is the first one. So it's quite an important major festival. And at that time, many people would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to visit the temple and to offer their sacrifices there. Now, for the sacrifice, they had to offer up a pure and an unblemished animal. So the animals were generally so close by. Because if you lived miles away from Jerusalem, you wouldn't want to have the hassle of bringing an animal along with you. It was much easier to buy one there. And also, each Jewish male of 20 years and over had to pay a half-shekel annual tax at the temple. Now, this tax had to be paid using a specific currency. So there needed to be money changers close by so that they could get the right kind of coins to offer for their temple tax. Now, all this was perfectly legitimate, perfectly in accordance with the Jewish law. And we don't get any hint in this passage that there was any major corruption happening here or any deceit happening. The traders and the money changers were just going about their business, as usual, in the way they had always done. Then along comes Jesus and the first outrageous thing happened. And we read that he made a whip out of cords and drove all the animals out of the temple courts and overturned the tables. Well, they weren't expecting that. 
because they were there with the agreement of the Jewish leaders. So as far as they were concerned, you know, what's the problem? So to help us understand just how outrageous this action of Jesus was, we need to understand for a minute how important the temple was for the Jews. It wasn't just a little church on a street corner. It wasn't even a church like this on a street corner. It was the heart and the center of Judaism. It was the symbol around which everything else circled. It was the organizing center of Jewish life in the first century. The temple was the center of government, with the agreement of the Roman authorities, of course. The center of judicial law, religious life, and taxation. It set the moral, the religious, and the political tone of the country. And it was the center of national celebration and mourning. But even more than this, the temple was the place where Yahweh, where God the Lord had promised to live in this world, in the midst of his people. It was the place of sacrifice, where sins were forgiven, and the place of union and fellowship between Israel and God. So we've got a couple of slides. The first one, this is obviously a model, but it shows you how large and impressive the temple was. It was really a huge place. Second slide, there were different courts within the temple area. The first one, which isn't in this slide, it was outside it, was the court of the Gentiles. And that was the only place that Gentiles could enter. There were big signs before you went on to the next bit telling them Gentiles could go no further. And it was in this court that the animals and the money changers were. Now you see the kind of plus sign shaped court there? That was the court of the women. And that was as close as the women were allowed to go. And then in the center, there's the court of the priests where the altar was and the sacrifices were made. And then the next slide. This is the main sanctuary, and it contained the Holy of Holies, where God was said to dwell. And only the high priest could enter this place, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So it's quite different from our church buildings, and it was important and impressive. And it became a rallying point for Judaism's fight for survival. The building dazzled visitors. We read in Mark 13, when Jesus' disciples saw it, they said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. The Roman troops stormed the temple in AD 70, and it was burnt to the ground, and it was never rebuilt. So for Jesus to clear the temple, and the way that he did was truly shocking and truly outrageous for those people who saw it. So we've established it was an important building. But what was it exactly that angered Jesus so much that he felt he had to clear the courts? Because remember that we said the traders and the money changers, they had to conduct their business somewhere. They weren't being especially corrupt or they weren't illegal. So it might not have been too obvious why Jesus was so upset. And Jesus tells us when he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. 
my father's house. Not stop turning the temple, stop turning this really nice building, look at the mess you're making of it. Not even, do you know what, you're just causing a bottleneck. People can't get in, move. No, the emphasis from Jesus was on turning my father's house into a market. So Jesus here clearly is calling God his father. He's identifying himself with God. And he's saying that while, yes, this is an important building for all sorts of different reasons, the main reason for this temple being here is that it is God's house. It's a place where God is to be worshipped, not a place where trading should happen. That should happen somewhere else, not in this temple area. Because they were detracting from the true purpose of the temple, which is to worship God. So in the place where there should only be brokenness and contrition, holy adoration, prolonged petition, there was now this noisy commerce. Can you imagine the sounds and the smells of everything there? They had allowed distractions to enter into a place where only true worship should be. For true worship comes from within, from the heart, from a right relationship with God, not only from observing rituals. And in the Old Testament, the people were often warned about this. First Samuel tells us, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Now Samuel wasn't saying here that the sacrifices that were laid down in the law were not important, but obedience is more important. You have to do the sacrifices, your rituals, with obedience in your heart, because what is in your heart is the most important thing. So are you truly worshipping from your heart this morning, every time we come to church? Or sometimes are we just doing what is necessary or what is expected of us? Now, I wonder what Jesus would say today if he was to walk into our church. Would he see it as a place of true worship, a place of prayer and adoration? Or would he see the traces of conflict, distraction, tension between what should be and what is? And when we come to worship God, do we bring ourselves fully, with no distractions? Do we leave those outside? Do we fully participate in the service? Can we sometimes be a bit too critical of what is going on? We want to come to be entertained. We want to sing songs that we like, not these old ones or not that new one again. We want to hear nice stories. We want to pray good prayers. We want to hear comforting words, not necessarily words that challenge us. We want to keep that bit of control for ourselves instead of giving it all to God. And can we sometimes be guilty of only wanting to worship in a certain building? We like our building, but we don't like that one down the street. We certainly don't like that one across the city. We like ours. Now, we might not be guilty of selling animals for sacrifice. I haven't seen any of that since I've been here. 
haven't seen any money changing. Do you know, but there are so many other things that distract us from worship, that take us away from praise. And we need to be aware that these possibilities exist in our lives and in the lives of our congregation. Sometimes even with the best of intentions, because remember the animals and the money changing was necessary for worship. It had just got out of hand. So the question for us this morning is what is distracting us from true worship? What outrageous act would Jesus do today in our churches? Stop turning my father's house into a market. Then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus went on and made an outrageous statement. The Jewish leaders come and ask him, on whose authority are you doing this? Who has given you the right to do and to say these things? Now again, here the Jewish leaders have the right to question his credentials because they are the people that are responsible for the temple, for the right conduct, and they have to guard against false prophets. But they seem to be a bit more concerned with precedent and with authority than they really are about true worship practices. Jesus replies, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What an outrageous statement that would appear to be. This is a huge, magnificent building. And yet Jesus is saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. How could this be possible? It had taken 46 years to build it. How could Jesus possibly build it again in three days? Of course, Jesus to them seemed to be talking in a riddle. Now, an important thing for us to remember is that what Jesus was talking about here couldn't actually possibly be understood at this point in the story. We know it because we know how the story continues. You can only fully understand what Jesus was talking about after the events of Easter and the resurrection. For Jesus is talking about himself. He's speaking of his own death and his resurrection in three days. It's a bit like when you're watching that film and something's highlighted, you know, all the action's happening here, but the camera pans over to some small, insignificant thing lying on the floor. You might even overlook it. You might dismiss it until you get further on in the story. When you get to the end of the story and you realize that that small, tiny thing that was still lying on the floor is the really important key to the whole story. So the disciples were like that. It wasn't until later that they remembered these words of Jesus and they believed them. But John puts these events here at the beginning of his gospel to emphasize again who this person truly is. And he gives us a hint of the new meaning that Jesus will give to the Passover when we get to that part in the story. Jesus is saying he is the true temple. We read in chapter 1, right at the beginning, that the Word, the Word that was with God, was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus is that Word who had now come to be among them 
and in his death and in his resurrection, he completes the building of a new temple where the glory of God is revealed, where forgiveness and renewal can now be experienced, and where fellowship with God is grounded and maintained, all in Jesus. And by offering his own body in sacrifice, the sacrifice which makes any future sacrifice unnecessary, Jesus makes it possible for us to have a more direct approach to God in a purer worship, which is only possible because of the resurrection on the third day. And anyone who accepts this sacrifice can become part of the new body of Christ and can offer themselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. So that outrageous statement of Jesus shows us that his death and resurrection makes a new covenant with God, which makes the services of the temple obsolete. And later on, when we read the story of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus says that the hour is coming when true worship will not take place in Jerusalem at the temple or in Samaria, but it will happen in spirit and truth. An outrageous statement from Jesus, but one that contains the very truth that we live by. Jesus, God's Son, was crucified on the cross, buried in a tomb, and rose again on the third day for each one of us. An outrageous act and an outrageous statement made by the Jesus that we are called to follow. So again, what outrageous acts what outrageous statements are we called to do in his name? We're called to speak out against injustices when we see them, to speak out against wrong practices, both in the church and in society, to discern where we ourselves have gone wrong and to ask for guidance to change things. But I think there's a slight warning for us in this passage. We are to be outrageous, yes, but outrageous in an appropriate way. This is not a license to go storming in whenever we disagree with anything. Even in his anger, Jesus was appropriate and righteous. He used just the right amount of anger in turning over the table. And yes, sometimes we've seen the picture of Jesus with this whip and the violence. But remember, this was not a whip that Jesus had taken in with him. It was just something that he'd picked up that was lying about. And he used it to drive the animals out. Have you ever tried to drive cattle out without something in your hand? You're not necessarily going to hit the beasts with it, but you just wave it in front of them or behind them and they move that was what Jesus did. And it was being done in the temple. There were temple guards there. There were Roman soldiers nearby. But there was no arrest of Jesus at this point. We don't read about the guards coming in to tell Jesus and hurry him out. The only question was, on whose authority are you doing this? 
And it was not the power of the whip that made Jesus' message succeed. It was the moral power, the truth of his statements that strike to the heart of the people. Jesus always spoke with God's authority, always acted with God's authority, even when he was being outrageous. His worship and his relationship with God was such that he could do no other. Oh, that we could be the same, that because of our close and our right relationship with God, our worship would be true, not filled with distractions, that our words and actions, while perhaps appearing outrageous to the world, would always be filled with God's authority, God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. Amen.